breaking bread is the key. I always say, and I've said it to you before, you can't have an argument with someone with a mouthful of ribs. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. Every week on this podcast, we celebrate the idea that some of our favorite dishes have really interesting backstories. And my guest today loves digging into those stories. Simon Majumdar is equal parts food historian and celebrity cook, broadcaster, author, and world traveler. Throughout my travels, I've eaten some of the most delicious dishes you can imagine. And now I'm bringing them to you. He's one of the true food nerds right up there with Alton Brown, Andrew Zimmern, Richard Blaze, and my good buddy, Justin Warner. You can't have that list without his name. Simon Majumdar is not just a TV judge, which I know that's how most of you know him from either Iron Chef, The Next Iron Chef, and more recently, Tournament of Champions, Guy Fieri's new show that started airing back in the spring. And he really is a citizen of the world and a student of food and people, too. If you follow him on Instagram, you know he's also a private chef to his wife, Sybil. (laughs) Thank you, Simon, for being here with us on Homemade. Hey, thanks, Marty. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have a chance to chat again, even if it is across the ether rather than face to face. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about when we met for the first time. And of course, I had known you for quite a long time, but we met for the first time in L.A., I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. Gosh, that was a while back, wasn't it? It really was a long time ago, wasn't it? And it wasn't your L.A. It was my L.A., Lower Alabama. We met on a farm for a food event that I think was promoting your book, Fed White and Blue. I think you were on your book tour. That's right. And uh, I was doing a dinner with some local chefs and we actually did a signing on the farm just outside of Spanish Fort. Am I right? That's right. And I had a great time. I always remember that my wife and I, we went around the country promoting the book and we went to all kinds of unusual places. I remember doing demos outside of a flower shop in Oxford, Mississippi. I remember all kinds of weird stuff that happened. I mean, it was great fun. But we ended up on this farm and we thought, well, we're just going to sit here for an hour. No one's going to come. It's a farm and then we'll come back and do the dinner, but we won't sell any books. But ended up with lots and lots of people turning up to buy books and having a chat. And we had a great time. We had a really good time. And it was our anniversary. The day we met was actually my wife and I's anniversary. I think it was our fifth anniversary. And I still remember that a local who I've got to know a little bit over the years, Pete, Panini Pete. Panini Pete, our good mutual friend. Lovely guy, invited us to his restaurant out on the water. And that's where we had our anniversary meal. And I still remember sipping on a martini as the sun went down and being very happy indeed. It all seems like a million years ago now for lots of reasons. It truly does. We had a great meal there. What I loved is that we worked with so many of the local chefs. And so just to be able to spend the whole day in the kitchen of the farm with them, making food for, what, 40 people or 50 people or however many it was, was a real, real joy. All right. So you have three books. I'm very fascinated with all of them for different reasons. But the one we are talking about right now, Fed, White and Blue, Finding America with My Fork, You traveled to all 50 states for that book. I haven't even done that. So what I want to know is why you decided you needed to do that prior to becoming a U.S. citizen. First of all, I think it was important for me to become a U.S. citizen. I was a green card holder. I could have stayed here and worked and, you know, I'd have paid taxes. I'd have done everything. 
But I don't feel I would have contributed anything kind of meaningfully without becoming a citizen, because I think then not only do you have rights, but you also have responsibilities, something we should all think about now without wanting to get political. I think citizenship of any country, and I'm a dual citizen of Britain and the United States, is you have responsibilities as well. And I wanted to have that kind of that duty. And connection, I imagine. Yes. One of the things I've found, you know, my father was Indian, my mother was Welsh, and I was always considered kind of neither one nor the other. If I was in India, they go, well, you're not Indian. If I'm in Wales, they go, well, you're certainly not Welsh. And so trying to find a connection with somewhere, I think, has always been very important to me. I think most people, when they think of me, probably just think of me as British, which is fine. You know, I'm very proud of being British, and certainly the accent has got me some work along the way, I'm sure. But for me, just as when I'm researching my food history podcast or researching anything that I do, I wanted to do due diligence. So I'd been to a lot of states in the United States already. I used to come over here on holiday. The United States was always the country that I'd adored. I'd always loved coming over here and seeing the different aspects of it. But I wanted to go and finish that job and find out more about the people. And I did that through the notion of food, because obviously that's what we do, yeah, both of us. And so I went on social media and I said, where should I go? What should I do? Who wants to invite me to come and experience something that you do as an American citizen? So what I loved about that was, to me, it really exemplified just how varied this country is. You could be a person with Vietnamese heritage who's come to Houston after the Vietnamese War. You can be a Basque in Bakersfield. You can be someone going back to the Mayflower. You can be obviously Native American going back thousands of years. Or you could be just about anything in the United States. And really for the book, I was very fortunate. On one day I was sitting next to Richard Petty watching the Daytona 500 in his pit tower. And a few days later, I'm out on a lobster boat with one of our mutual friends, Michelle, up in New England. The next week, I'm in New Mexico roasting hatched chilies. The next week, I'm in California picking grapes, whatever it was, at one point hosting a kosher barbecue festival in Kansas City with a wonderful guy, a rabbi, Mendel Siegel. So all of these things were thrown at me in the nicest possible way. And I think it gave me, I think, a unique view of what it means to be an American. And I hope it gives me a much more rounded view, again, particularly now we're coming up to an election, all these things. And I hope what it gives me is an ability to sit down with people who are different politically, different religiously, different all kinds of ways, and just realize that they're all still Americans. You know, Simon, I think the great connector is food. No matter what your background is or wherever you come from, people always are proud to share their food heritage, and they're proud to share their family recipes, too. Um, I did a road trip for my book about beloved Alabama restaurants, and in the front of the book, there are these stories from famous folks about the food they crave. And people always ask me, how in the world did you get all those quotes from those really famous people? And I said, you know, if you call up somebody like Chuck Lavelle, for example, who was one of the Allman Brothers and for the past, I don't know, however many years, he's been the musical director for the Rolling Stones. And if you call him up and say, can I talk to you? The answer is probably no. But if you call him and say, I want to know your favorite food memory or your favorite food tradition or craving, they'll talk to you and they're proud to share that. And that's not just true in the United States, but my 
great memories of food around the world aren't just driven by fine dining, for want of a better way of expressing it. When I've been across France and Italy and Spain and Southeast Asia, and I've eaten in some of the best restaurants in the world. I feel very grateful and very fortunate to have done it. But those aren't my best experiences. My best experiences are really sitting down with those wonderful folks on a train in Marrakesh or in a courtyard sitting around a big communal plate of food in Senegal. That's where I get really excited. For your book, Eat My Globe, it was your one year to go everywhere and eat everything. So let's say I went, I don't know, to Senegal or Marrakesh, one of those ones you just mentioned. What would I eat? What would that even be like? Well, the first thing that you find is, in both those cases, extraordinary levels of hospitality. So it's all about the guest. And sometimes we can forget that in the United States. I remember in Marrakesh being on the train, and it was one of those little old-style compartments, and a family got on, about seven or eight of them, and they were all speaking in Arabic. And one of them said something to me, because I have a darker skin, and they said something in Arabic, and I just said, yeah, I kind of shrugged. And then they said, well, do you speak French? Because it's Morocco, and they also speak French. And I said, well, yes, a little, you know, from school. So immediately, the entire family switched to French, so I could be part of the conversation. So it's that kind of level. And then what happened was they said, did you have food? And I'd kind of mistaken the length of the journey. It was about eight hours, and I had half a pack of Pringles and a bottle of Diet Coke. And suddenly, they brought out all this amazing food, making sure that all the best bits of food, the roast chicken, the cheese, the fish, whatever it was, ended up in front of me. Similarly, in Senegal, I was sitting in the courtyard of the person who I met there, and his parents and sisters had made this dish called feboujen, fish and rice, and it's rice with scotch bonnet peppers, and it's just delicious, delicious, delicious. But you all eat from a big round plate, huge round plate. And the mother, who was then in her 80s, was pushing all the best bits of fish and peppers to my side of the plate the whole time to make sure that I got it. So as much as the food was delicious, and it really was, and I crave it, it was that beautiful hospitality that touched me. Breaking bread is the key. I always say, and I've said it to you before, you can't have an argument with someone with a mouthful of ribs. No, you can't. So true. Uh, Once you said that barbecue was America's greatest contribution to the world's culinary scene, that was the one thing that America really brought to food that is unmistakable. Why did you pick barbecue? First of all, it speaks to American history, because obviously you have the history of slaves coming up from the Caribbean who brought their own cooking of pork. So you have that history, and that history goes back through the Caribbean to West Africa. So you have real, real antecedents to that way of cooking. And then also, as you move around the country, the way that it altered because of the people who were cooking it. So you go to Texas, which was primarily Germans and a lot of butchers. And so their barbecue was notionally very different. So rather than pork, whole pork, whether it's chopped or whatever you do with it, they were doing beef. And then you start looking at beef, which wasn't indigenous to the United States. It was brought here by colonists. And so how they started using beef there, because it was wild. You had all these herds causing problems. So they started killing and slow cooking them and developing this rather delicious style. And then you get the great movement after emancipation. You get the movement of African-Americans around and they're taking barbecue up to Chicago and barbecue up to Kansas City, where the stockyards are. So apart from the fact barbecue is just bloody delicious in all its styles, it also, to me, 
speaks to American history more than any other food. And I could literally go on for days talking about the history of not just the cooking of it, but what brought it to that point. What brought Memphis to their style? What brought Kansas City to its style? What brought the Carolinas to its style? The origins of mustard and tomatoes and vinegar and all those things that we argue about as barbecue fans. Now I have to ask you your most memorable barbecue experience that you've had here in the States. The Kosher Barbecue Festival. And the first one I went to was in Overland Park. Rabbi Mendel, you'll see him, the barbecue rabbi, who now owns a barbecue restaurant down in Florida. And what I loved about that was that this is obviously a very different community with different rules because of their religion, but who were absolutely welcomed into the barbecue world. They were just part of the team. I went to host it and be part of it. And all the food had to be prepared on the Thursday and put into coolers because Friday obviously was the beginning of the Sabbath. And then cooking couldn't begin until the rabbi had come out on the Saturday night and gone, there are three stars in the sky and the Sabbath had finished. And they'd done the blessing. Yeah, done the blessing. And then they started cooking, but they had to use all communal spices because, again, they had to be certified kosher. But what I loved about that was once you'd gone through the things that they needed to do, once you heard they started cooking and the first beer bottle kind of popped, it was like any other barbecue competition that you'd ever been. You're listening to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan, and we'll be right back after the break. back to Homemade. Today, my guest is Simon Majumdar. Simon, I mentioned in the opening that you're also the private chef for your lovely bride, Sybil. I have love following along with you during the lockdown. You cook for her almost every day. I want a Simon to cook for me. I follow you on Twitter, too, and Instagram, and you have made some beautiful pantry dishes. I think a lot of people following along with you are looking to you for inspiration because we're kind of all getting sick of our same old recipes. The pantry cooking that you've been doing really takes our normal pantry staples and elevates them. Recently, you did stuffed peppers, for example. How did you take that to another level, not the same old boring stuffed pepper? Well, I think a lot of it is inspiration, again, from my travels. So I look at flavor profiles and I try and recreate those. What I like to do is just literally open up the fridge and go, well, what have we got? I made cream corn the other day. I love cream corn. Me too. But I'm now going to turn it into a soup because I've got a little bit of that less and stock that I made. So I'm really passionate about not wasting food. We live in a country where we waste a third of everything we buy. And what makes it even worse is we live in a country as rich as we are, where people will die every day of starvation. And to me, that's shameful shameful on all of us. And again, that's not political. It shouldn't matter how you vote. That's shameful. No child in this country should ever be without food ever. So every day I'll look in the fridge. I'll go today. I've got some tomatoes. I've got half a cucumber that's looking a little ragged at the back of the crisper. Well, I know I can do something with that, whether it's put it in yogurt and make a tzatziki with it, whatever it is. Okay. I want to roll back a second to when you were talking about that soup, the corn soup. So you've made some cream corn and now you're going to turn it into a soup. Can you walk me through how that recipe might go? So I make my cream corn in maybe a slightly different way. So I'll make quite a rich bechamel sauce and then I will use lots of corn. And I'm a great believer in 
frozen and particularly if you're at home right now frozen cans and sometimes we're going oh well you know we should only use again because we're spoiled i love to have canned stuff and frozen stuff and i used it all the time and i think you can add flavors to it so i made the bechamel it's going to have you know a little bit of nutmeg so the flavors are in there i have half an onion i have some garlic some sisha rosemary some tarragon i'm going to have some stock and the bechamel i'm going to poach all of that together i'll probably put some broken up bits of chicken i have a little bit of chicken there so it's going to be like a chicken and sweet corn soup almost but i'll put the chicken in later i'm going to blitz the heck out of it pass it through a sieve two or three times probably add a bit more stock so it'll loosen up tiny bit of cream so it'll be a very smooth soup like a cream of corn soup and then add flecks of chicken I have a little bit of bread that we made, and so I've got some croutons. Just float that on the top. But what I do with the croutons is I'll toss them in olive oil, a little bit of onion powder, garlic powder, shove them in the oven until they get really crunchy. Bang. And then just float those on the top. Mine never make it to the soup, though. I eat them before I even get them on there. They're just so delicious. I love making croutons. And like you said, they get so crispy and just so good. For those of you who haven't listened yet, Eat My Globe, Simon's podcast is in its fifth season and it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. I love, love, love the work that I do with the Food Network and judging and occasionally when they ask me to cook on a show. And I love my demos that I do around the country as you do. Yeah, all the great things. But by the nature of those shows, they're shorter, whether it's half an hour or an hour. You don't have as much time to express the things that I'm really passionate about. And food history is probably number one. So I started this two years ago now, Eat My Globe podcast. I just started writing. I wrote the history of fish and chips one day when I was at home and I was bored. I then connected with the Department of History at UCLA and we decided to do this podcast together. So now we've done lots of episodes. We do the history of tea. We've done the history of gin. We've got one coming up on dining in ancient Rome. We've done the history of champagne. We've done... And chocolate. Chocolate. We're particularly passionate about dining on the Titanic because the whole notion of dining on the Titanic tells you about the class structure and how people were treated on the Titanic. And then we've interviewed some amazing people. Yes, you've had on documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. I absolutely loved his series on country music and the one about baseball. And you've also interviewed my former Food Network star mentor, Mr. Alton Brown. That interview with Alton was one of my favorites because it was after we'd filmed Good Eats. So we were sitting on the set of Good Eats and I basically said to Alton, whenever we film together, whether it's Iron Chef or Cutthroat Kitchen, we spend all of our time talking about people and food history. So I said, well, why don't we do that? Why don't I challenge you to name five people from food history who deserve to be remembered but aren't? We'll just have the conversations we always have, except luckily this time, because it probably would have been crazy if with a, without a martini in front of us. So we did. We sat there for an hour and a half, nearly two hours, just talking about five people. We had great fun on the set of Eats. The Ken Burns one was really interesting because I'm doing an event in New Orleans and I come back to the hotel after the event and was watching PBS and there was Ken Burns being interviewed. And I just put something on Twitter going, we should feel very fortunate we live in a period where Ken Burns is making films and we get to hear him talk about them. So he kind of emailed me after that or tweeted me and said, oh, I'd love to be on your podcast. And it was like, oh, it's Ken Burns. And I said, well, I'm not sure what we'll talk about in terms of, he's a historian, obviously, but I don't know about connection with food. Turns out that Ken Burns owns an amazing restaurant. I mean, just classic food, like fantastic coco van, like a really perfect martini. Everything that we had in this tiny little restaurant. Ken Burns is one of these people who operates at a level of excellence. And everything he does 
comes from that point of view. So the restaurant is perfect. And when you meet people like that, we mentioned Alton, another one who operates from a level of excellence like that is Guy Fieri. Everything they do from how he treats the crew, how the crew react to people who come in. I'm a fairly two-year member of the Guy's Grocery Games family. But the thing you notice immediately is when you come in, just that everybody operates at a level of excellence. And when you're in the presence of people like that, it's really extraordinary because it hopefully rubs off on you. And I feel very fortunate that I can spend time with people who are kind of that good. And yet they're still trying to up their game. Even though they're already that good, they're always working hard to take it to the next level. Always. Guy did that with Tournament of Champions. So early on, we talked a little bit about you being a food historian. What's your personal food history, Simon? Did you grow up in a home where people cook? So my father from Calcutta in India, very food-obsessed culture across India, but Calcutta, definitely. Uh, My mother was from Wales, but food in Wales was always delicious, but it was more functional. So she grew up post-Second World War with rationing. It was more about feeding you. But what they also had was wonderful things like great baking. I've never eaten baked food as good as my Welsh grandmother and my mother, pies and cakes and breads, because it filled you up. But it was a real way of expressing love for someone to walk in a house and have bread baking. It's why they pump bread smells around supermarkets. So we did. And all of our conversations were about food. My mother passed away about 16 years ago. My father passed away last year. So all our talks with each other were all signposted by what we ate. My father, would go, well, I don't remember. I'm 86. I can't remember what you're talking about. And I go, yeah, you do. We ate this. And he goes, oh, I know exactly where we were. And he could tell you everything about it. I mentioned that my brother used to come out to the United States to eat barbecue. That was our holidays. My wife and I, all of our trips before all of this lockdown craziness, we were in the Philippines where her family are from. And then in Tokyo for 10 days, it was all based on where we were going to eat the whole time. To me, it's so central to everything that I am and do. You know, I grew up in a cooking home too, and I feel very much the same way. Although my experience has not been nearly as global as yours, I have spent a great deal of time in the UK, and anybody who knows me knows if there is fish and chips on the menu, I'm ordering it. And I've heard you say many times that fish and chips would be your final meal if you had to pick one. Yep. I'm a giant fan of Heston Blumenthal, and I've heard you say his chips, meaning fries, y'all, which are cooked three times, are the world's greatest chips. So give us a quick tutorial on the perfect fish and chips Your memories of it go way, way back to having fish and chips as a kid and getting them in a paper bag from the chippy. Tell us a little bit about all that. So a lot of it is about the context of fish and chips. So fish and chips has an amazing history. It actually comes from religious persecution. So in the 1800s, you had Jewish Portuguese who were thrown out of Portugal who fried fish. And they ended up in London. And then a little while later, you had Belgian Huguenots who fried potatoes. And they were thrown out of France and they ended up in London. And they intermarried in the east end of London, kind of Jack the Ripper territory. And that's where the first fish and chip shop opened. So I love the fact that, first of all, the most British of dishes was created out of British tolerance towards people who were under religious persecution. So I love that. It's cheap. It was nourishing. It could feed people. It was also healthy in the sense that. Because it was fried, it killed off all the bacteria. And you're talking about Victorian times when things weren't perhaps as sanitary as they might be now. So it had that element and people could eat it on the go. So it was for workers. It became so popular that it was the only food during the Second World War that Churchill did not ration. 
He knew the impact on the morale of Great Britain would be so devastated by not going on Friday to go to the fish and chip shop. So it became a huge thing. And for us on a Friday in the north of England, going to the chippy and standing in line and getting your fish and chips wrapped up. And I would always get mine wrapped up rather than open, because if you wrap them up, they'd put a few extra chips in there. So I wanted more chips. And I've cooked fish and chips at fish and chip shops. And I try and explain to people, you can get fish and chips at lots of different levels. If you go to a gastro pub or a pub, you'll get one style. And that's what I've done on my video. If you go to a chippy, it's a very different style. So the triple cook chip that Hester Blumenthal does, that I do, is basically take a potato, and he does it over three days. My life doesn't go to doing three days for fish and chips, but you could do it over the afternoon. So you cut the finger thick chips. That's the key. Not like the little fries because they'll disintegrate, but like thick chips, like a steak fry almost. You parboil it. So just for three or four minutes in boiling water, you take it out, you lay it on kitchen towel, paper towel, and you refrigerate it, let it completely dry. The next stage, once you've got to that point, is you then fry it at 325 degrees for about three or four minutes. Again, just till it blanches almost in the oil and goes a little bit blonde, not golden, but blonde. You then take that out, lay those out again, crank up the oil, 350, 375, and then you fry them for another two or three minutes. And what happens through this process is that you get these extraordinary crunchy chips and the inside is soft and pillowy and really delicious, particularly then when you splash a little bit of malt vinegar. And uh, malt vinegar was very important because the acid works really, really well. Right. You'll always get a few little bits and pieces of the potato that just kind of fry in the oil and they're really crunchy. Really crunchy. Really crunchy. And when you used to go to the chip shop as a kid, they weren't doing triple cooked chips there. But if you were a little kid, like say four or five years old, and you're with your parents and you're a little bit impatient, the people behind the counter in the fish and chip shop would bring out a little cone of paper and they'd have filled it with these little bits of crunchy chips and also the batter from the fish. Oh, man. And they'd put some salt and vinegar. They called it scraps. Or in my part of the world, they called it scraps. They'd go, oh, do you want some scraps while you're waiting? And it was like a little freebie for the kids. And you'd eat this. And so now, you know, you have that Proustian thing. You talk about eating a dish or smelling a dish and you just go back in your memory. So if I have those little crunchy bits of chips while I'm cooking for other people, I'll put them to one side, put a bit of vinegar on them and eat them. And immediately, I'm 56 now, immediately it's 50 years ago and I'm standing in a chip shop in the north of England. So I think great food has that ability. Yes, it should be delicious in its own right, but its ability to take you back, I guarantee you'll have a smell of something and immediately you'll think of your grandmother or somebody who you love in your life through food. So a quick question about the fish in the fish and chips. It's usually haddock or cod. I know you like cod and I like cod as well. Is there a big difference or does it even really make a difference which fish we use? A lot of it was where you were in the country. So it was what big shoals of fish came in to where your trawlers went out. In the north of England, you had cod, obviously, but a lot of the chip shops up there had haddock. In the south, it tended to be cod as well. But you also had skate. You had other things. So one of the key things about making a great batter is you want it to kind of puff away from the fish. So the fish really steams inside the batter. It shouldn't cling to it. It shouldn't be greasy. And there's some history to it. So 
one of the things I found doing some research is back in Victorian times, they would actually put a pinch of turmeric, which you think of as from India. But obviously, this was by the ports in London, where you see turmeric in medieval recipes. So it's not that unknown, but a little pinch of it. And actually, it works. If it works in your apple pie, it works in any pastry, it gives it this beautiful golden color and you don't taste it, but it gives your pastries of any type, it gives it just a tiny pinch. And it's really remarkable. No, so just a teensy pinch and is that just for color or does it add a little bit of flavor as well? No flavor. And there's other things I do. I'll always put a little miniature of vodka into my batter. I saw where you do that. And the point of the vodka is to... The vodka evaporates at a quicker temperature than just water. And so it helps give you a crispier batter. Now, a lot of people, when I talk about it, go, well, fish and chip shops, wouldn't they do a beer batter? Well, beer was too expensive. You drink beer. So I don't mind a beer batter, but I don't make it very often. For me, when I'm making it, egg, flour, baking powder, and sometimes I'll add a little cornstarch or Japanese rice flour. Rice flour is great because it does give a really crispy batter, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like tempura flour. Yeah, it lightens it up a bit. And then there's one thing you don't talk about that I have to have besides malt vinegar, of course, mushy peas. (laughs) I love mushy peas. And I want to have mushy peas with my fish and chips. Well, you're a very rare American. Most Americans I know are rather off put by them. I love them. I love them. And again, they have a great history because these were often dried peas, a particular type of pea called a marrow fat pea. You have to soak them. But these were often in ships in the ballast in sacks. So they were helped to balance the ships. So during winter, when the ships couldn't go out, and people basically were starving, they would take these peas and soak them, and they'd make a soup out of them, or they'd make mushy peas. With fish and chips, a big thing of mushy peas with vinegar on top of it is one of my favorite things. I was in the UK last year at Heston Blumenthal's Casual Restaurant, you know, the one in the Berkshire in Bray, and they do a beautiful mushy pea. Oh, yeah. They keep it so bright and so vibrant and green. It's got some whole peas and then the mushy pea. And I think it's got a little bit of mint in it too. Yes, it does. And maybe just a touch of lemon. To me, that combination of the fish and chips with the mushy peas, a little bit of malt vinegar, and then a nice cold lager. It's my favorite. I love it. That brings me to a question I want to ask you. What dish defines your holiday table? What dish has to be a part of the menu for your holiday to feel complete? for me, the big holidays in the United Kingdom. So Christmas is obviously a huge one. But the one that I really loved was Easter. And my mum would always cook lamb on Easter, of course, the Paschal lamb, the Easter lamb. And she would always cook a huge, like, shoulder of lamb. And shoulder of lamb to me is one of the most delicious dishes in the world because it's a little fattier. The outside skin goes crunchy and crispy if you rub it down with a little bit of flour and oil and Oh, lots of salt and pepper. And so for me, a big thing of roast lamb with a mint sauce made out of fresh mint, a little bit of sugar and vinegar and salt, and then really good because of the time, new potatoes, the first potatoes that are coming through, almost like little fingerlings, just boiled with butter on top and a bit of salt. Just super simple. One of the things I struggle in the United States if I'm not ordering in is to get really good lamb. Simon, we have had such a great time getting to know you and a bit of your own personal backstory today. You're such a wealth of information. You're really one of our best food educators, and you shortcut things for the rest of us. I encourage everybody to listen to Simon's podcast, Eat My Globe. You're going to find something that really interests you, and the next thing you know, like me, you're going to have gone through 12 episodes. It's really wonderful. 
Simon, I appreciate you being here with us on Homemade today. It was my very great pleasure. It was a great opportunity to chat again. And there's never a time in life when I don't want to share my enthusiasm about food with someone else who's equally as enthusiastic. Y'all, this is Simon Majumdar, and thank you again for being here with us on Homemade. Take care. Bye. Bye now. Simon Majumdar is the author of several books, including Fed White and Blue and Eat My Globe. His podcast is also called Eat My Globe, and you can find it where you found this podcast. He's also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Simon Majumdar. We've got a great show coming up for you next week with Chef Amberell. She's the host of Food Network's Worst Cooks in America. You definitely don't want to miss that one. She's one of my favorites. And if you haven't already, take a minute or two to subscribe to the podcast. That way, all the new shows will show up just like magic on your phone. And while you're there subscribing, please leave us a review so we know how we're doing. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.